looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 42. So go ahead and turn there. As you're getting there, uh, just as a reminder, the apostles had been arrested. Uh, They'd been put into the public jail, but then that night an angel came and opened the doors to the jail and brought the apostles out, saying to them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And so they go back to the temple, and uh, the same place that they were arrested, they begin to preach again the truths about Jesus, the very thing that got them arrested in the first place. And as this is happening, uh, the religious leaders, not knowing that the angel had come, not knowing that they had been let out, uh, they send for the apostles, but when the um, prison doors are open, which had been locked, uh, they find that they're gone. And so they go back, they tell the leaders, and then uh, someone comes and says, hey, these guys are uh, teaching again in the temple. And so where we left off last week is these religious leaders send the captain of the officers to bring them back. Uh, They do this without force because they feared the people, uh, but they bring them back. And that that brings us to verse 27 where we're going to be Uh, today. So if you're able to stand, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read Acts 5, verses 27 through 42. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching." And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, They were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were, dis- were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if, if, it, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you and thank you that those words are true. That Christ is Jesus. 
But you have come. You have fulfilled the promises that were given. You have made a way for us to know you. So we praise you and we thank you. We ask for your help as we go through this text, Lord, that you would give us ears that lean into you and to your spirit, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, verses 27 and 28, they brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet... Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so they bring the apostles before the council and these guys are angry. They're so frustrated and angry that the apostles will not stop preaching, will not stop telling people how Jesus is truly the Messiah. How he came and lived a life of love and holiness how he laid down his life as the fulfillment of scriptures, bringing redemption to any and all who would trust in him, how he was literally raised from the dead, and how he ascended to the Father. To these religious leaders, to the Sanhedrin, this was heresy, blasphemy against God. Now, all Jewish people knew that there were right channels of worship and wrong channels of worship. These disciples of Jesus were neglecting the laws. It was through the temple that God worked and met with people. That's what what the Jewish people knew. It was there at the temple that He brought forgiveness and salvation, and now these These apostles of Jesus are not only saying that forgiveness and salvation come through Jesus, not the temple, but they're telling people that the very people that they should go to to learn how to act and how to behave had actually been the ones who turned over the Messiah, Jesus, to be killed. So the the Sanhedrin... In their anger, they can't let them go. Here are the apostles now standing where Jesus had stood before the religious leaders during his trial. In Luke 22, verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, the same place. And here the Sanhedrin to the apostles tell them, we told you, we strictly charged you to stop speaking about Jesus, but you have filled Jerusalem with this teaching. I love that. You have now filled Jerusalem with this teaching. It's incredible. That's their aim. That's their desire to spread the good news of Jesus to everyone. Jesus had told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they're joyfully fulfilling that call. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now this is obviously a a statement and even a question that weighs on us still today. We must obey God rather than men. Here in Acts 5, that obedience is clear. 
they're being commanded not to obey the clear command of Jesus, go and preach the gospel. And so there's a clear conflict between the commands of God and the commands of men. And there, there are those that happen today. You can get brothers and sisters in Christ living in places where it's illegal to be a Christian or especially to convert others to Christianity. What are they to do? Are they to just quietly serve the Lord privately in their homes and never tell a person about the hope that they have in Jesus? Of course not. As difficult as that must be, they're called, commanded to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and like these apostles, they delight in doing it. That's such an important thing for us to notice from this text. There is joy in these disciples. There's joy in, in them serving the Lord. That becomes evident in the text today. They're not, they're not reluctantly obeying. They're joyful. They're glad to be telling others about the greatness and glory of Jesus. For the apostles, obeying men meant no, or if they did obey men, it would mean no longer preaching about Jesus, no longer preaching the gospel, no longer telling people that Jesus died and was raised, no, long, no longer pointing to Him as the fulfillment of the promises to God. Now, Peter doesn't deny that they have disobeyed the order that the Sanhedrin had imposed. He doesn't deny that. They had. He's saying, we have one king. And all other authorities submit to our king, Jesus. We must obey him. We must obey God rather than men. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now, this is such a good way for Peter to, to word this. The God of our fathers, the God of our ancestors. In other words, Peter begins here by saying to the Sanhedrin that they're not talking about a different God. They're talking about the same God, the same ruler as the one that the Sanhedrin claims to defend and speak for. And there's, Peter's really saying here there are, that, that it's them, the apostles, who are staying true to the Jewish tradition. That they're being faithful. Yahweh raised Jesus from the dead. The one that had been condemned and killed, Yahweh raised from the dead as a proof that He truly was the Messiah who had been promised to His people. Verse 31 continues, God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is incredible. 
Peter and the apostles are clearly articulating the truth about Jesus and the reason that they must continue to speak about Him. God raised Jesus from the dead and then exalted Him to His right hand as leader and Savior. It's Jesus. And Jesus alone who is our leader. It's Jesus who is the one who leads us into God's new kingdom. It is Jesus who's the one who's drawing people into this new kingdom of God. The Sanhedrin continued to teach that the temple was the place where heaven and earth meet together, but they missed the fullness of God's story. Because there was always this promise of one who was coming. One who would come and bring those places together once and for all in Him. And Jesus is that place. Jesus brings heaven and earth together. It is through Jesus and Him alone that heaven and earth meet. Apostles say Jesus is our leader. So important. That's why I'm encouraging a focus on the Sermon on the Mount this year. Jesus, our leader, gives us a picture through his own life and through his teaching of what following him looks like. Now, you think of, of kids who play the, uh, the game Follow the Leader. And, and, and honestly, it's I mean, there's no simpler game in the world, right? I mean, you know if you're losing. If the leader is going this way and you're like sitting in the corner picking your nose, you're not winning. You're not doing a good job following the leader. We know what that means. We know what follow the leader means. And Jesus has come to the earth and given us not just his words, but his life. The way that he lived and the things that he taught us and said to us, this is what it looks like to follow me. And Peter says he's come as leader for us. In other words, we, we, we must get in line behind him behind who he is and, and how he lived and the things that he said. And he was exalted, they say, as Savior. Jesus is Savior of the world. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has broken down the wall of hostility between God and man, and between man and man. He is our leader and our Savior. 
He came to rescue us from sin and death, and He alone can accomplish that. He's exalted as leader and Savior, and we, 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 we don't want to overlook that word exalted. Jesus is lifted up, worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our lives, worthy of us following Him. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter continues, it is Jesus who brings repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. Jesus came as leader and Savior to bring Israel and others to repentance. And, and notice the wording there. It is a gift. Repentance is a gift to us. He gives repentance. God offers salvation, not retribution, salvation to these Israelites for the crucifixion of Jesus. They're ticked. The Sanhedrin, they're angry. Partly because they're blamed for Jesus' death. But Peter is clear, what God is offering to them is repentance and forgiveness of sins. goes on in verse 32, and we're witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Again, Peter says that they know these things to be true because they've, they're eyewitnesses. They've seen. They saw Him die. They saw Him alive again. They walked with Him. They they touched him. They ate with him. And then they were there when Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand. They're certain that Jesus is the Messiah because they've seen and the Spirit bears witness to them of the truth. And so they're certain that they will obey him rather than these men. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So that didn't go well. It didn't calm the religious leaders down. They want to kill the apostles, and truly they could have. They would sometimes kill for religious reasons and then justify that before Pontius Pilate. Or they could just take the men to Pilate and accuse them of leading people away from following the emperor. They're furious at these apostles. There's verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So here's Gamaliel who, who is front and center now. 
And we know from other texts and Jewish sources that Gamaliel is well known. He was remembered as one of the greatest rabbis of all time. He knew the law frontwards, he knew the law backwards, he taught many, including, as we find out later in the book of Acts, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle. Now, now Gamaliel is not defending the apostles here. His desire is to defend the integrity of the Sanhedrin. And Luke describes him as a teacher of the law who is held in honor by all the people. Even the, the example of what happened shows us that. Because of his position and his honor, he's able to say to the Sanhedrin to dismiss them and to, and to listen to him. And so they dismiss the apostles, they leave. In verses 35 through 39, he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Gamaliel is level-headed here and helpful. He calls for the leaders to be cautious, to take care of, and what they're about to do to these apostles. And then he gives these historical examples as to why they ought to be cautious, and really why they shouldn't be concerned. He points out that there were other movements, there were other uprisings that worked themselves out at, after the death of the leaders of those movements. Really, he's encouraging the Sanhedrin to handle these apostles considering those other uprisings. If they kill the apostles, then there's going to be an uproar from the people. And that's not going to be good. But if they let things play out, then maybe things will die down on their own. Now, the first example he gives is this man named Thutis who rose up claiming says to be somebody, whatever that means. There's this call for people to follow him, follow me. Apparently they did, about 400 of them. But at some point, somehow, Thutis was killed, and according to Luke's account of what Gamaliel said, the movement died with him. He gives another example of this man named Judas, a Galilean who rose up and led people away. His point in these two accounts is this. If it's a movement from man, we don't need to worry about it. It's going to fail. Eventually, it's going to fail. And so the council just step aside, keep, keep away from these apostles, let them be, and don't have them killed. 
and consider where they're at and what they're thinking. Jesus, the leader of this movement, had been killed. They had had him killed. They don't believe he's alive again. They don't believe he was raised from the dead. And so they should just wait and see what happens. Let it play out. But notice what else he says. Maybe it is for men. If it is, it's going to fail. But maybe it's actually from God. And if it is from God, then the Sanhedrin, as powerful as they might be, are opposing God, and they will not succeed. So he's saying, leave this matter in God's hands. Now again, I don't think Gamaliel is being pro-Christian here. He's being pragmatic. He certainly has a negative view of the apostles, which is why he uses negative examples in his appeal, but he's seeking to protect the integrity of the Sanhedrin. Then continues, verses 40 through 42, and when they have called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And this is amazing, and truly amazing. They take, they take Gamaliel's advice for the most part. I mean, the whole like, leave them alone and beat them doesn't, <laughs> I don't get that, but. They don't kill them. They beat them. Whether that means they were flogged, which would be a horrible means of torture, or beat them with rods, that's debated with scholars. Whichever it is, it was terrible. But what do the apostles do in response to that? How do they respond to this beating. And honestly, we should let this sink in. The Sanhedrin beat them and charged them not to speak about Jesus anymore. And the apostles leave rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy, considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. It's amazing. Scott McKnight writes, they adored that they were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for Jesus. They react to the punishment with joy. They are full of joy. Why? Because they were happy to be identified with Jesus. In Luke 6, 22 and 23, Jesus says, Blessed are you, happy are you, when people hate you, 
And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed or happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The apostles rejoiced because they believed that Jesus wasn't lying to them. That they have reward in heaven. They rejoice that they're being identified with Jesus, their leader and Savior. And later, Peter would write in his first letter, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. The beginning of that, chapter in 1 Peter chapter 4, he starts that, he says in the midst of that, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, gird yourselves, arm yourselves. What, what's the weapon that we take into this world? The same mindset of Christ, the mindset of these apostles who rejoice, who are happy to be identified with Jesus, no matter what that means. They're beaten for teaching about Jesus, and they rejoice because they've been identified with Him, but also they keep teaching about Him. They keep bringing this good news that brought them suffering from house to house, and person to person. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. He's come. Beautiful. What a joyful display of faith in Jesus. That Jesus really is as sweet and wonderful and beautiful as He claims to be as worthy, as worth it. What a joyful display of belief in that. To be identified with Jesus. And we have this means together of displaying our faith in Jesus each week. And it's, it's nothing like this. I mean, it's, we have this gift, this blessing of partaking together in the Lord's Supper that we're told is an identification with Jesus. That we're identifying ourselves with our leader and Savior, Jesus. I know I repeat this a lot. I, I never, ever want it to be something that I take for granted or something that just becomes words without meaning. But I, I also want to keep saying it so that Hopefully, we don't become numb to it. 
Paul, in writing about the Lord's Supper, said that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That we're literally doing that. You think about the blessing of that. Jesus said to remember that His body was broken. Each and every time we take the bread to remember that His body suffered more than we will ever suffer so that we might be His. And He said to remember that His blood was literally poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. To remember that each and every time we take the cup. To remember, my body was broken, my blood was poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And Paul taught that we proclaim to each other our belief in that. That we believe that great truth each and every time we take it together. Now, how can we not do that with joy? The apostles were beaten and rejoiced that they were identified with Jesus. How much more as we identify with Him through the bread and the cup? Let's, let's honestly contemplate that. And let's truly rejoice as we proclaim to each other our belief that Jesus died and was raised and brings us forgiveness and life in Him. Let's pray. Father, we love You and we thank You. You're so good to us, Lord. So gracious. Your mercy never ends. Your mercies are new every single morning and we are unworthy. And we want to be people who rejoice we want to be people who are truly happy to be identified with Jesus in any and every circumstance. So help us, Lord. Help us as we come to you, our leader and Savior, to truly follow you, trusting that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that your ways are the right ways, that your truth is the truth, and that your life is the life everlasting. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.